We are just continuing our study right through the gospel according to Matthew, as we have been in this morning, as the Lord would have it. We just happen to have come to Matthew 21, which is the triumphal entry. And of course, people today all around the globe are commemorating Palm Sunday. It's that Sunday before Jesus was crucified, the date of his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And it's one of those important events that is recorded for us in each one of the four different gospel accounts. It's uh, certainly a watershed moment. And it sets in motion all of this crisis that's going to happen in this last week of Jesus' life. And you've probably heard this story taught for likely as many years as you have been a believer. For some, maybe it's just a handful. And I'm sure there are people here in this room with us this morning that are hearing this maybe for the 60th or 70th time. And yet, it's so powerful and it's not to be missed, I think, each and every time. I actually heard a sad story this week. There was a little boy who was sick on Palm Sunday, and he stayed home from church with his mom. And then his dad got home from church, and he was holding this little palm branch. And so the little boy was curious and says, well, Dad, why do you have that palm branch? And the father explained, he says, well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, so we got palm branches today at church. And with that, the little boy just threw up his hands and he says, the only Sunday I miss church and Jesus shows up. (laughs) So the moral of the story, of course, is don't miss church any Sunday, right? We're so used to thinking about Palm Sunday as this great day of celebration, and absolutely it is, and yet not for reasons, of course, that we usually would think. We associate the day with Jesus being welcomed as the coming king and as we said the people waving these palm branches in his honor but when we consider the rest of the story you know in fact what we find is a slightly different outcome because each of the gospel accounts tell this tale of these great expectations that are coupled with these acclamations of hosannas on Sunday followed very quickly by the condemnation of crucify him by Friday, and perhaps in some cases it was from the very same people. We know that John opened up his gospel account. He said that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that was because he just didn't turn out to be what they wanted him to be. And we're going to, of course, consider that this morning. But I also hope that we'll consider some kind of searching questions about what we each are expecting Jesus to be for us as he shows up and is present in our lives as well. So let's pray and just ask the Lord that he would bless his word this morning. Father, we do thank you for just the privilege of being able to be here, Lord, and to assemble together, Lord, to to be here to minister to you in our worship, Lord, to be ministered to by you through your spirit as he teaches us your word. Lord, we pray Uh, Just for uh, ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, all throughout chapters 14 through 20, we have been inching our way through this section that we called the Retreat 
of the king. We saw that Jesus kind of withdrew a bit from that large ministry publicly in order to have the opportunity to pour in privately to the disciples. He's instructing, he's encouraging really all of us in what it means and what it's going to look like in this coming kingdom community that he would establish here on earth. And so here in Matthew 21, it marks the beginning of a new section. It's this fourth and final section of the account of Jesus' life here in Matthew. It's the rejection of the king, which culminates, of course, in this conflict that will lead to his crucifixion. We looked last week as Jesus healed those two blind beggars outside of Jericho. He gave them not only their sight, but we saw he gave them their salvation as they started to follow after him on what would be that last leg of his journey to Jerusalem. Most likely, as John 19 tells us, right to the town of Bethany. Now the town of Bethany was just about a a mile east of Jerusalem, so on the Jericho side, and that's where he would have stayed and rested for about a a week at the home of his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So now refreshed, you know, rested physically, refreshed spiritually, no doubt he'd been encouraged emotionally by his time with the people he loved. Now he sets out, right, preparing to enter Jerusalem for what he knew would be the very last Time And it says in verse 1 of Matthew 21 that now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. So just short of Jerusalem, right? Jesus stops and he gives this sort of set of strange instructions. He asks them to go get him a donkey and a colt, right? A baby donkey. And we wonder if the disciples started to worry that perhaps Jesus was weary right, from all of his walking. And yet Matthew's going to comment for us next and we're going to see that there was an altogether different reason, reason for this strange request. Verse 4 and 5, it says that all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So rather than an issue of exhaustion, This was an issue of Jesus' presentation to the people as the king of Israel. We know that every move that Jesus made as he went through the world was in exact accord with both the Father's will and with the prophetic word. And here, Jesus' entry into the city on a donkey, this would have been in direct fulfillment of a clear and a well-known messianic prophecy out of Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it clearly states that their, their conquering king would enter into the city riding not on some sort of a great stallion, 
right? which would have been the, what the, the Romans or the, the pagan kings would have ridden. It was a sign of war and of victory, but on a donkey, right? this animal of peace. Now, we today usually wouldn't associate a lowly donkey with a king, and yet, in actuality, the donkey was the royal animal of Jewish monarchs. In the Bible, you see the donkey is always a sign of humility and of labor and strength and, strangely enough, of regal authority. We see examples of it in the books of Genesis and Judges and in both of the Samuels and the Kings and the books of Chronicles. And today, it would be not unlike riding into town in like a Rolls Royce. So when Jesus is doing what he's doing here, this is a deliberate messianic claim. He's preparing to offer himself to the people at precisely a time when Jerusalem would have been surging with Jews from all over the country and in fact from all over the world. He's presenting himself as none other than the anointed one of God that was promised in the scriptures. Now we compare this, we contrast it really, to the fact that we've seen Jesus so far, usually he's sort of moved around quietly, didn't he? He preferred a little bit more obscurity. Many times we've seen him, he would heal someone and then what would he say to them? He'd say, see that you tell no one. Right? Over and over we've seen him avoiding controversy and he avoids this confrontation with the religious leaders because he would say that my hour has not yet come. Well, here it has. According to the perfect prophetic timeline of heaven, today was the day. And in fact, the Holy Spirit, through John's account, is very careful to chronicle without a doubt precisely what day it actually was. In John chapter 12, verse 1, it says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So that would have been a Friday. Probably after his journey from Jericho, he would have arrived before sundown and the start of that Friday night into Saturday, Sabbath. What you need to know that in the Jewish reckoning, the day begins at sunset. So Saturday would have begun on what we would call Friday night. So we know, of course, that there was a special supper that was prepared for him. Many believe that would have been sometime during that Saturday Sabbath period. And then John 12, 12 tells us that it was the next day, right, Sunday, that all of these events of the triumphal entry occurred. Now that day would have been chronologically the 10th day of Nisan, right, which is by our calendar the 6th day of April, it would have been four days before the feast of the Passover, and it would have been, not by coincidence, the very day that had been prophesied hundreds of years previously. By the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he says that, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 
Now, this is a complicated prophecy, and yet, literally, it means seven sevens and 62 sevens, or 69 seven-year units, or 483 years. So 483 years from March 14th, 445 BC, which is the day, historically, that Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah the charge to go out and rebuild Jerusalem. So 483 years from that exact day was this exact day in our text today, April 6th, AD 32. That's the next day here as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And this is a day that the religious leaders should have had circled on their wall calendars. Right? They should have had alarms going off on their phone, notifications coming from Google to tell them this is the day, today's the day. It's no wonder Luke tells us that it was as Jesus stopped and approached the city that he lamented. And what did he say in Luke chapter 19? He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So we need to make no mistake, Jesus was making a public demonstration of himself. He was making a public proclamation about himself. He was publicly offering himself to them, and yet, as we know, they all missed it. And I think that it's in the, in the wisdom of God that this very public display, in part, was so that the Jewish people would never be able to claim, hey, if we had only had the opportunity, right? if we had only known that you were you know, presenting yourself as king, we certainly would have received you. Jesus is about to strip away that excuse from the entire Jewish nation as he prepares to ride in clearly fulfilling all of these prophecies, publicly offering himself to them. And really... God has stripped away this very same excuse from everyone. You know, the fact, one of the reasons that the Bible's Old Testament is so important still to us as Christians is that it contains prophecy about Jesus, right? Over 300 predictions, in fact, that all of them, like threads of a tapestry, all of them establish the messianic credentials of Jesus, because only Jesus fulfilled all of them. Now, we're going to go this morning through every one of the... No, I'm just kidding. No, no, we're not going to go through all 300. But here's just a few of them, right? The Old Testament predicts, and all the scripture references are up there on the screen, predicts that he would be a descendant of Abraham. He'd be from the tribe of Judah. He'd be a, a descendant of David. He would come from the stump of Jesse, which means that that point after the Davidic kingdom was cut off. Predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. Here that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says that he would suffer. He'd be silent before his accusers. He'd be considered a criminal. He'd be executed with them. That he'd make intercession for them. It says that he would have his hands and his feet pierced in Psalm 22, which is especially interesting because at the time that that psalm was written, crucifixion didn't even exist yet. So there would have been no known reason why anyone's hands and feet would have been pierced. 
It was predicted that people would gamble for his clothing, that he would be killed, and that as a criminal he would be assigned the burial place of the wicked, but he'd actually end up being buried in a tomb with the wealthy. It predicts that his body would not see decay. The scriptures, of course, predict that he would get up and rise from the dead and that he would ascend into heaven from where he will again return one day to rule the earth. Now, of course, the skeptics will try to tell us, well, of course, Jesus just purposely fulfilled all of those predictions so that he could appear to be the Messiah. Well, that's as ludicrous as it sounds because how many of just the prophecies that we just looked at of the Messiah, how many of those prophecies were way outside of his control as a man? Not to mention the place of his birth, the time of his birth, the way that he was born, the way that he died, the way that he was buried. If Jesus was simply a man pretending to be the Messiah, he would have had control over none of those things. So when we look at these hundreds of prophecies and we consider that the the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of those specific prophecies, it's one in ten to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros after it. It's a mind-boggling number. In fact, each one of us would have better odds winning the lottery, right? Better odds being struck by lightning. And in fact, author Peter Stoner years back wrote a book called Science Speaks to demonstrate that mathematically there's proof that Jesus is the Messiah. One of his most famous quotes He writes about the probability of this. He said, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. He says, now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. And the truth is, they didn't. The prophets didn't write these prophecies. God did. Amen? And Jesus Jesus fulfilled not just eight of them, but he fulfilled all of them. And these are just the prophecies from his first coming. With such amazing accuracy, he fulfilled all these prophecies of his first coming. Why would anyone who's a reasonable person doubt that all of those prophecies yet to to be fulfilled for his second coming would be fulfilled just like the first ones were? Why would any reasonable person doubt that Jesus Christ was the man that all of these prophecies point to? Did you know that the Bible is the only religious writing that contains prophecy? 
There's these prophecies, countless other historically verifiable prophecies relating to nations and to kings and to people. And the Bible is the only book with these types of predictions that have consistently and accurately been fulfilled. And because of that, we can trust it. We can trust the author of it, and we can trust the Savior that it declares. So Jesus gives the disciples their instructions, right? This prophetic demonstration. And then we read about, look in verses 6 and 7, about their obedient cooperation. It says that so the, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. I think, as Chris pointed out, it's important to point out that the disciples here are acting in blind obedience to Jesus' command. They didn't know in the slightest how significant this was. They didn't understand that they were actually fulfilling prophecy. And as we studied through this, we could read this verse and we almost expect there to be a verse that comes after it that says something like, and after Jesus said thus, Peter said, but Lord, right? <laughs> and yet, look, it's not there. So we do need to give the disciples the credit here for their obedience. And I think especially since John gives us some insight here, in John chapter 12, verse 16, he says specifically, he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So Jesus on a donkey, right? All of this fulfillment of prophecy, this presentation as Israel's king, none of this meant anything to the disciples until after his death because they lacked the perspective of the cross. They lacked the perspective of the resurrection. Not unlike the nation, they were blindly unaware that Jesus had actually come to die and to solve a far greater problem than just their oppression by Rome. And notice that John specifically points out that it wasn't until Jesus was glorified. It wasn't just after he was risen, but after he was glorified after he would not only risen from the grave but ascended into heaven that point where he was seated again at the right hand of the father it wasn't until that point that they actually understood now why was that well because they were lacking the ministry of the holy spirit as we read, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles that they began finally to fully understand and put all of these prophetic pieces together. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. Because let me encourage you here on this Palm Sunday morning as you're sharing with people about your faith in Jesus, you're giving them your testimony about the ways in which he's transformed your life, you're handing out those invite cards, you're inviting them to come here and join us next Sunday, it's important for us to understand that it's quite probable that they probably don't understand the message of the cross. They may not understand their deepest need. They may not understand that there's anything that they need to be delivered from. They may be thinking about Jesus. 
They may be considering him for any number of reasons as an addition to their lives. They may even be thinking of him because he could end war and he could end poverty and he could end homelessness, right? He could eliminate stress. He could eliminate financial stress and marital stress and work stress and emotional stress and he could do away with their family conflict and be the answer to their fear. And he could and he can do all of those things, but what only he can do, only he can pay the price for someone's sins and then present them righteous and make them clean before the Father. It says in 1 Titus 2 that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for who? For us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the people that you're sharing with don't understand any of this. But keep sharing it with them anyway. Right? Paul says that the message of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So try to put yourself back in that place. Think about what you thought about the gospel before you actually believed in the gospel. Think back to when it didn't make sense, back to when it seemed like foolishness to you. Think back to that point before Jesus, through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, before he started speaking to your heart and giving you understanding, put yourself back in that place and then consider how thankful you are that someone loved you enough to keep sharing and to just keep ministering to you and to keep bearing with you in your rebellion until you came to that point of brokenness and you allowed Jesus in. And I want to encourage us also, even now, right, sitting here this morning, most of us as, as already children of God, we're seeking to grow in him. We're seeking to be pleasing to him. Sometimes the scriptures can be confusing to us. Sometimes they seem to make no sense, but that's okay. Right? Keep reading. Keep studying because... The same truth applies. And that's that as Jesus is glorified more and more in and through our lives, as our, as our obedience to his word increases, we will gain a greater understanding of the scriptures. Because as a promise that Jesus promised that when he, the spirit of truth, has come, that he will guide us into all truth. So from the example of the disciples here, we see that understanding so often follows obedience. There are times when we just need to do what he says without necessarily understanding why we're doing it. Because who knows? When we do, we may just be fulfilling prophecy and not even know it. Because, because of their obedience to Jesus... Right? On this Palm Sunday morning, what we see now is that everything's ready. All of the prophetic pieces are in place. Jesus starts out down the Mount of Olives. He's riding into Jerusalem after his prophetic demonstration has been prepared, after the disciples have obediently cooperated. Now we see the people 
declaring in verses 8 and 9. It says, And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the highest. This is it. The people are thinking, this is it. Our hour of triumph has surely come. So right from the pages, right from the promises of Scripture, they believed that this man here on that donkey was about to assert his royal authority and begin, establish this royal reign over Israel and all of the nations which would be subject to it, that Jerusalem would be the capital of this newly regenerated world. Now look at them here. Words straight out of Psalm 118, which is one of the most famous messianic psalms. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Here in verse 9, that cry, Hosanna, right? It means save now. So on this day, the crowd actually was receiving Jesus as the triumphant Messiah, as the king of Israel. And the problem, though, is that they didn't really understand the kind of king that Jesus was. They didn't understand the kind of king that they actually needed. Because this waving of palm branches wasn't something new. It was a a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It had begun about 200 years earlier when they were hailing their last great deliverer, Judas Maccabees. He had delivered them from the oppression of the Syrians. And so as people were essentially waving these branches and crying out Hosanna, what they were really saying is, hey, we want you to be Judas Maccabeus to us, right? Deliver us again now from the Romans, Because that word Hosanna simply means save now. So what they're effectively saying is overthrow the Roman yoke politically. They're saying help us economically. They're saying lead us militarily. They're saying save us now from our circumstances. And yet we all know prophetically that all of this will be accomplished in God's appointed time, and yet Jesus knew that he had other work to be done before that. We've seen already, he knows there could be no kingdom without the cross. So it's no wonder with this heightened sense of expectation, it's no wonder that as the week went on and they started to realize that none of that was his intent, that they start to turn against Jesus when they would start to realize that he had a very different agenda than a political one. He had a very different agenda than a national one. He had a very different agenda than a material one. That's when their cries changed from Hosanna to crucify him. And I think that the same thing can happen today because there's a tendency within the heart of each one of us after we start to follow after Jesus there can be a tendency to throw up our hands, throw in the towel, and cash it all in 
when things don't start to go the way that we expected them to go. If you come to Jesus because you're expecting him to be a good luck charm for you, or you're expecting him simply to start to help you financially or physically or socially or vocationally, if you come to him expecting only those things, you'll probably be disappointed when things don't necessarily go the way you thought they were going to go. We need to realize and remember and remind ourselves that Jesus came to pay the price for our iniquity, to die for our sins. And that if he never does anything else in this life presently for us, that that's still more than enough. What he's done is still more than enough to, to merit our loyalty and our affection and our devotion eternally. If he never does another thing for me, if he never gives another blessing to me, I owe him my life because of what he did for me on Calvary. Dying for my sins on the cross. And yet the problem is, we appreciate him dying on the cross for us, but there are so very few Christians who are at, interested at all in a cross that talks about us doing any kind of dying to ourselves. See, it's one thing to shout out at a parade, but it's something altogether different to take up our cross, isn't it? This was a patriotic rally, and the crowds here are looking to Jesus as a political, national deliverer, not as a spiritual savior. But Jesus isn't traveling the road to revolution. He's traveling the road to Calvary. And that road didn't just lead triumphantly into Jerusalem, but we're going to see it leads all through its streets where he's going to be mocked and he's going to be jeered just days from now. And this road that Jesus walked was a road that didn't end in the city, but it continued out to the other side through the city to the cross, to a hill, to a place called Golgotha, right? To Calvary, the place of the skull, where as Paul explained, he would be made sin for us. And he would suffer in our place a death on a Roman cross. And Jesus knew all of this today and the crowd had no idea. It's amazing to consider that these people are quoting scripture and they're having the scriptures fulfilled in front of their eyes and yet just days from now they're going to willfully reject Jesus because they don't fully understand what he's there to do. But for now... We have this great prophetic demonstration. We have the disciples' obedient cooperation. We have the people's powerful declaration. And now we read next about the multitudes, what I call their inciting identification. Look in verses 10 and 11. It said that when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, of Galilee. Now, we wonder why they didn't recognize him from his social media presence. And yet what's happening here is that the, the residents of Jerusalem didn't know who Jesus was. 
Remember, he has spent most of his time and the base of his ministry operations has been up in the north and he comes to Jerusalem just when he needs to for the feasts. But it was those who'd been following after him says that the multitudes, they were the ones who had to answer and to explain what all of this commotion was about as the city was so moved. And it's interesting that Greek word that's translated moved is the word sio. And it's where we get our word seismic. So what Matthew is saying here is that the whole city was quaking. Of course, not physically but mentally, it was quaking emotionally on this day that Jesus made this entry. Everyone in the city was aware of Jesus, including, of course, his enemies. And so it was, in, in many ways, it was this very public demonstration, this prophetic proclamation. This is the thing that would finally force the religious leaders to act, Because they're watching these huge crowds gather and honor Jesus. And the Pharisees at this point became quite convinced that Jesus had won the day. In John chapter 12 verse 19 it says that the Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Some of the other translations say that they said there's nothing we can do. Look, the world has gone after him. After him. So they were realizing that their attempts thus far to stop Jesus just weren't working. And they're realizing here now on Sunday that they need to really step up their game. Because what they were anticipating was some sort of a big revolt during the Passover season, that maybe Jesus had planned to do some sort of a great miracle, right, that was calculated to attempt to capture the minds and the hearts of the people. And it just shows us how, how really little they, the Pharisees understood the mind and the mission and the heart of Jesus. It's interesting, their desperate words there when they say, look, the world has gone after him. Pretty ironic. Also very prophetic, right? Personally, they felt threatened needlessly because this Jerusalem crowd that seemed to leave everything to follow Jesus very soon is going to desert him. And yet, Jesus indeed will become, won't he, the one whom every man, every woman, and every child throughout all of human history needs to seek after. And it's the one that they missed. And what, of course, they didn't recognize was that in their desperation to be in this big hurry to deal with Jesus and to kill him, even in the middle of this Passover feast, that they would only actually be acting according to God's perfect prophetic timing. They would be fulfilling prophecy themselves because Jesus, the Lamb of God, had to give his life exactly when the Passover lamb was to be slain because that Passover lamb was nothing more than a picture of Jesus himself. And what's interesting is that according to the law in the book of Exodus, today was the day, right? Now Palm Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan by our calendar, the 6th day of April, four days before the feast of the Passover, this would have been the day when every Jewish family that was celebrating the Passover would select their lamb, 
which would be their sacrifice. And then what would happen is that the priests would watch that lamb closely from the 10th to the 14th day of the month of Nisan in order to ensure that it was of the best health and that it was without blemish. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there was a census taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover and the figure was somewhere around 256,000 lambs. So here on this day in our text in AD 32, we can picture not just Jesus coming into the city, but tens of thousands of lambs being brought into Jerusalem. Right? And on this day, in the midst of all of the selecting and all of the inspecting of these Passover lambs, the true Lamb of God, right, slain before the foundation of the world, was entering the holy city in humility and in fulfillment of prophecy to be sacrificed for you and for me so that he could take away the sins of the world. But what we also know is that the next time that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, again in fulfillment of prophecy, the next time that Israel sees their king coming, the scene's going to be radically different. Because the book of Revelation chapter 19, prophecies from Zechariah chapter 14, they tell us that Jesus is going to come that time in great glory. And he will be riding on a white horse. And he's not going to come in humility, right? But that the armies of heaven, which will include each and every one of us who know him, that we're going to be with him. Right? He'll descend again on this same spot, down the Mount of Olives, as this very Palm Sunday road leads. He's going to descend onto the Mount of Olives in his foot will split the whole mountain in two. It's going to be a scene of total victory as he comes to defeat his enemies finally and establish his kingdom eternally. But this time, on this Palm Sunday morning, what we can be so thankful of, we can celebrate is that Jesus did come first in humility. He came riding on a donkey, right? Not on the road to revolution. He didn't come to overthrow Rome, but he came on the road to Calvary. Right? He came to redeem our souls back to God. And we can think about the fact that we now have this great privilege of sharing this great hope with a world that is greatly desperate for that. They are looking for a lamb, but they don't even understand why. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to look at a story, Lord, that we may be so familiar with, Lord, but it's a story that truly can't become too familiar to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help this, these truths to be fresh and to be new on our hearts. Lord, this truth of the Lamb of God, Lord, being selected and being presented, Lord, as a sacrifice. Lord, we pray that you would help to um, 
Lord, just make those truths as fresh to our hearts today as it, as it was the first time that we read them. Father, we pray that you'd give us a newfound appreciation for that, Lord. We pray as we do head into this holy week, Lord, that you would help to prepare our hearts, Lord, to celebrate your great victory over sin and over death. Lord, as you overcome those things in our lives, Lord, you help us to overcome that greatest obstacle, Lord, to, that separates us from fellowship with you. And so we thank you, Lord, and oh, how we do praise you this Palm Sunday morning, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.